Hello, I am Richard Booker, I am a haematologist in the West Midlands, England, and this is Don't Just Read the Guidelines. Don't Just Read the Guidelines is a podcast that explores ideas and research at the cutting edge of medicine, especially anything to do with blood. I aim to provide a platform to incredible people you probably haven't heard from before and share their work, ideas and opinions. We will take you beyond the guidelines and into the research behind them. And most importantly, into the sticky world of opinion and conjecture. You can subscribe to this podcast on your preferred platform. And don't forget to leave a review, as it really helps others to find the show. If you would like to come on the podcast or know someone else who would be great, please find me on Twitter, at Richard Booker. My guest on this episode is Dr Wendy Jones, MBE. Wendy is a pharmacist who has been supporting breastfeeding women across the UK for the last 40 years. I'm again breaking my own podcast rule of speaking to up-and-coming early-stage career people, but another point of this podcast is to give a platform to people who have something wonderful to say and might not necessarily be heard from, especially by the medics and scientists that perhaps listen to this podcast. I'm also aware that given Wendy's fame in breastfeeding circles, that this will be listened to by non-clinicians and I promise to make it easy listening, accessible and downright fascinating. Why am I bothered about breastfeeding as a haematologist? Why is it an important subject for haematologists and other clinicians? Well, in my short time of being a dad to two extremely lively children, I've realised the importance of breastfeeding and how important it can be for us clinicians to understand something about it. Obviously, I think it's also important for everyone, not only clinicians, to understand breastfeeding, the benefits and how you can support it. But for clinicians, there is another level. We have a lot of influence and responsibility and, well, we can do a shitload of damage very quickly with throwaway remarks and decisions, such as advising women to stop breastfeeding in order to take a certain medication. The medical bible, the BNF, symbolises that oversimplification of balancing risk. An example of this being sertraline that we're going to discuss in this podcast. Widely regarded as the go-to postpartum anxiolytic antidepressant and widely regarded as being safe in breastfeeding, the BNF states, advise stopping breastfeeding. That's it. No more explanation, nuance, signposting, no indication that one should consider the psychological impact of telling a mother to stop breastfeeding, of her losing that bonding opportunity with her baby, of her losing the endorphins attached to it and providing her with a sense of failure. As a haematologist, I worry about breastfeeding anticoagulation, with the new direct oral anticoagulants also being advised against in breastfeeding mothers, leaving them with either low molecular weight heparin injections or warfarin, which needs regular monitoring blood tests. Again, we all need to learn to consider, discuss and balance the risks and benefits of our decisions when it comes to breastfeeding mothers. For some women, breastfeeding their baby is the most important thing to them at that moment in their life. For others, who are flickering between breastfeeding and formula, careless throwaway comments will be enough to tip the balance and encourage them down the formula route. Many of us encounter pregnancy or new mothers in our daily practice and it is totally reasonable for us to briefly discuss breastfeeding. But how many of us are comfortable with it? I think I'm only comfortable now having seen my wife diligently breastfeed my two kids. But there are lots of resources out there. Wendy Jones' website, breastfeedingandmedication.co.uk, is one such source and possibly the best. So please do check it out. I'll put some links to really useful resources in the blurb to this episode. Right, enough of me. Let's meet our guest. Hi, Wendy. Welcome to Don't Just Read the Guidelines. It's really great to have you here. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a great pleasure to be with you. 
And we're also joined by a really, really special guest, Holly. Holly is my good lady wife and is a breastfeeding expert from experience with two little ones. Um, so she's going to grill you. I'm going to grill you. We're all going to get um, lots of interesting information about breastfeeding. And I'm going to ask you lots of difficult questions. Is that OK? <laughs> Not too difficult. I haven't got a gin and tonic in front of me. <laughs> oh, OK. Well, you, you, there's time to get to one. Get I can one. pause. No, it's all right. I don't actually drink. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so I... In the introduction, I would have talked a little bit about you, but um, I mean, breastfeeding is um, is something that should come naturally to humans. But for some reason in modern society, it seems to have fallen away. Um, I mean, I'm just going to recap some statistics. I'm sure you know, but perhaps listeners won't be aware of that. In the UK, about 80 percent of women start breastfeeding, but exclusive breastfeeding at six weeks falls to just 24 percent in England. And that's 13 percent in Northern Ireland. At three months, 17 percent of women are exclusively breastfeeding. And at six months, only one percent exclusively breastfeeding, although any breastfeeding at six months is around a third. That has improved over the last 15 years, actually, from about a quarter to a third. Um, but things are slightly, slightly important in um, slightly better in Scotland. Um, I mean, these are pretty, pretty shocking statistics, really. <clears throat> and we'll get on to maybe why, why some of these these figures exist. But Hol, I just want to ask you, and these are conversations we've obviously had before, but for the benefit of Wendy and everyone that's listening, why was breastfeeding so important to you? And you've breastfed our two little ones, Joey, two and a half, Autumn, nearly one, and you've breastfed them both past the age of one, which is is testament to your grit and determination. Um, but yeah, why why is it so important to you? I just want to stipulate before I start, when Rich says that I'm a breastfeeding expert, that's purely just from feeding for the last two and a half years of my life. I've breastfed uh, our son and our daughter um, since they were born um, and they're now age two and autumn's nearly one next week. Um, and I knew from when I fell pregnant with both of them um, that I wanted to breastfeed. Um, my sister breastfed my mum breastfed it was something that was just sort of commonplace in my surroundings um so I suppose it's a cultural thing for me to just assume yeah I'll be breastfeeding too and I think that plays a big part in it as well but on a personal level um now that I'm in it and I'm breastfeeding the things that I love about it is that bonding experience um knowing that I'm giving the best um nutritional composition of milk that I could possibly give to my babies um and you know all, we've had covid in the last two years knowing that I'm giving them antibodies and giving them as much protection as I can um and just those cuddles at night not having to get up and mess about with bottles and sterilizing um yeah I feed autumn a lot overnight still at the moment but I get to just lie down and whip my boob out she latches on and I fall back to sleep which is great for me um and for her as well because she gets cuddles all night long but each to their own everybody does things differently that's how we do it um I love it and actually when I was pregnant with autumn and I was still feeding Joey um I got really sad because my milk started to dry up and he was dry nursing for a while and then he self-weaned um and this was earlier than I'd wanted him to this was when he was about 17 18 months old um no sooner than that actually because she was born when he was 18 months he would have been about 16 months old um and yeah it made me quite sad and and I experienced what I now know was post weaning blues but I didn't know that at the time um from him actually self weaning um so I think on that note as well it's 
been really good for my mental health. Um, I learned a lot about the fact that, you know, it gets your ho- your, your happy hormones flowing, oxytocin flowing, and that's good for postnatal mental health. But we're going to come on to that a bit later on, I think. Yeah, we'll definitely come on to that later. Um, I mean, you've painted quite a rosy picture there, Hull, of the breastfeeding story, but it was it the journey was pretty bumpy, especially at the start with both of them, really, wasn't it? Do you want to say a little bit about that? Yeah, so Joey was born in the first week of lockdown, 2020, March 2020. Um, so, yeah, it was there was nobody on the road at all on the way to hospital. Um, it was literally when Boris was in hospital, everything had locked down. Um, but that meant a reduction in services as well. So... Um, I had some struggles with Joey pretty much when he was from when he was born. The first few days he was latching okay, but I got a lot of pain and sort of bleeding, cracked nipples within the first few days. Had a really nasty bout of mastitis when he was a week old. We didn't know what it was because obviously I'd never breastfed before. I didn't have much experience in it. And, and despite the fact that Rich's a doctor, he didn't really have a clue about breastfeeding either. <laughs> um, so the first assumption was, oh, you've caught COVID from hospital. That's why you've got a temper 40. Um, Rich being a doctor was pretty confident that I had, you know, early signs of sepsis. Um which she did. She definitely did. I mean, she was tachycardic, high temperature. Um, but yeah, we... Yeah, did, we... Did, but um, hospital, I think at that point, were like, no, you've got a temperature, don't come in because it could be COVID. Just take these antibiotics and hopefully it'll all be okay. And um, with some rest, antibiotics and a lot of massaging the area, when we discovered it was mastitis, <laughs> um, it improved. But then I got it recurring for weeks after that and it was sort of the same thing over and over again um and despite the fact that um you know we were told his latch looks good um it obviously wasn't and it was i mean it was just horrendous um if i had a pound for every mum who has been told your latch looks perfect but the mum saying it hurts the baby's unsettled i would be able to fund the national debt (laughs) <laughs> it's such a common thing that everybody is told. Mm. And and every mum just goes, I know it's not. Yeah. Just yeah. stop with the platitudes and help me. That's it. And it's so frustrating. It's and you get told, yeah, it's 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 common to, you know, you just have to get through that first bit of pain. Well, no, it's common, but it's not normal. And yeah, that it's really, really frustrating when, and, and that's where I'd say I became a bit of an expert because everything out there that I could read up on it about positioning latch, you know, thrush, um, Raynaud syndrome, every possible thing that I thought this could be what's happening to me, I thought maybe that's the solution because I was told, no, he doesn't have a tongue tie, it's fine. Um, and then, yeah, he dropped about, he dropped two centiles so he was sort of below 10th centile we got admitted for a day in hospital because he was quite dehydrated he had had, which will tell you more about something in his blood um so we needed monitoring and that sort of triggered triggered more intervention then because services were down during covid the tongue tie service had been cancelled um so we um basically just had to wait until he was a couple of months old um we did get him assessed really early on Privately. Um, privately. Yeah. Um, but I think at that point, there wasn't the contextual information about, you know, he he appeared to have a good latch at that point, but there wasn't that sort of context that there was a few weeks later of him dropping all that weight and me having, you know, bout after bout of mastitis. Um, and then we had him assessed. We had him, um, had a frenulotomy and sort of within a few weeks, it, it improved massively. 
Um, so yeah, that's the story of, of with Joey. Um, and then when Autumn was born, um, I mean, just in the first few minutes when you have that euphoria of, you know, lifting up your, your baby after she's been born, um, I saw her, I saw her cry and I thought, oh shit, <laughs> there's the tongue tying <laughs> under a tongue, plain as day to see. Um, and it was actually more obvious than Joey's. Hers, Joey's was a posterior tongue tied. Hers was really obvious. So we just booked straight in um, to get it done privately. And day five, we got her snipped. But by then, I, I'd already still had a lot of trauma to my nipples. Um, and I definitely wouldn't have been able to continue any further with her having Joey, a toddler, running around at the same time. So, And, yeah, and we were really lucky to be able to afford to, to pay privately because um, they're not cheap and you, you think oh, okay well if we'd waited for the NHS services Holly would have had to stop breastfeeding this baby would have had to go onto a bottle and it would have been very difficult to get her restarted and, 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 and often at that point they won't snip it because the baby is bottle feeding okay yeah. Yeah. so it's not an issue and this you know this whole this whole scenario illustrates the value of breastfeeding to society or or how society doesn't value value this um which we'll touch on again later so yeah i mean our, our story's been pretty bumpy which i guess contextualizes why the hell i've got a breastfeeding expert on this podcast um but it's honestly one of the 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 the, the podcasts i've been most excited to record so um let's get on with asking you some questions if i if i may um, okay can i so, can i just say one thing to holly then of course mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think that nobody can actually understand how painful it is when you're trying desperately to do the best for your baby and for your own future help. But every time you know it's going to be agony and you've just got to sit there and do your best. And for you, Rich, to to sit there and watch Holly going through that pain and not go, should we just give them a bottle? Oh, absolutely. I wouldn't have been able to do it if Rich hadn't been so supportive and understand. Because, I mean, I was awful to you. I was awful to everyone around me except for that <laughs> tiny little baby that needed me. Um, and, yeah, the the pain. I mean, I was on paracetamol, ibuprofen around the clock just to get through it. Um, I mean, it was more painful than <laughs> it was more painful than giving birth. And I gave birth on two paracetamol, you know. It was, and, it was and, just and horrific. two hours later, you've got to do it all over again. Yeah, yeah. On... on on something that's already bleeding and bruised and cracked it's yeah and in the mean in the meantime you've had to sort of change nappies deal with the under the child massage your boob get in the bath you know all that all let alone have something to eat and drink yeah and then dad's gone back to work after two weeks as well so you know this is another another thing um in the, in the interest of time we could talk about our breastfeeding story forever and and thank you so much for your kind kind words um but Wendy, I mean, you've you've dedicated your life to breastfeeding. <clears throat> why why are we so bothered about breastfeeding? Why is it good? I think with every year that goes past, I'm more boggled about how special breast milk is. And, and you know, there's a quote that I use in every one of my talks was that if somebody invented breast milk, they'd get the Nobel Prize for economics as well as for health because it's got so many health benefits and saves so much money and and it it saddens me that the people who can least afford the formula milk are the ones who don't get the support you had a background of breastfeeding so you were halfway there you knew you wanted to do it but if you'd come from a family where nobody had breastfed in the past 
and bottle feeding is normal, then you're kind of already setting yourself up for failure. And then you look at a tin of formula in the supermarket. And let's say you're in one of the um, cheaper supermarkets that we all have to go to these days. And you look at a branded one that's £15 a tin and an own brand one that's £9 a tin. You're going to choose the expensive one because surely it's got to be better. It's got to be better for your baby because if you... You know, if you can't breastfeed, well, then you've got to buy the most expensive one. And actually, there's no difference between them at all. They have to meet a normal standard. Hmm. But breastfeeding has so many different things that it protects your baby against, but it also protects you against breast cancer, ovarian cancer. Your periods don't come back. And we could all go, yippee, no periods for 18 months. <laughs> um, and so you don't lose iron stores. And it is about that bonding and sleep and the oxytocin. My youngest grandchild is just three weeks old and I only have to pick her up in my arms and cuddle her. And I get that oxytocin feeling of total relaxation, total calm that no amount of mindfulness or anything else can give you. So it's got the health benefits, the economic benefits, the special relaxation so it oxytocin prolactin also help you go to back to sleep more easily at night so do you go straight back to sleep after you've done a feed at night or did I, you I sleep i sleep while she feeds yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean I, I i've nailed the the side lie position although my shoulders are a little bit creakier from it but yeah got the side lie position down and yeah as she she has a little cry i mean rich gets a solid nine hours a night because no. he doesn't it does okay <laughs> at least seven because i get to her before that's another thing you're just intuitive to, with, to your baby. So I get to her before he even gets a chance to wake. I get my boob out, latch her on, and then I'm back to sleep. She's feeding, everybody's happy. And yeah, we snuggle and, and sleep. And then Rich I, I do gets up early when, with the toddler. <laughs> <laughs> when one of, my, one of mine was um, fairly small and she w- woke up during the night because I have three girls and, and I'm kind of got my boob out and I'm, edging across the bed, trying to poke it into her mouth. Come bless you, God. I was trying to poke it in my husband's ear. She was in the <laughs> other side of the That's when you realise that sleep deprivation has gone. <laughs> I mean, I'm quite a deep sleeper, so it may well have happened. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's, it's just kind of one of these special gifts and yes we can say it's natural but it doesn't come naturally to everybody and we've lost the ability to support it and see it as normal and for every woman who doesn't breastfeed when they're outside there's another message to the society that you have to stay indoors you can bottle field a baby when you're out but you mustn't breastfeed because that could be seen as upsetting to somebody. Whereas there are so many of the these social media groups where people are feeding for two, three, four, five years, and nobody knows because they keep it a secret because mm. they don't want to have the discussion of, yeah. well, that's a bit weird. Whereas it isn't weird. That's what nature intended us to do. 
What's the historical context for this? Where did all this come from? Because, you know, throughout evolution and human history, breastfeeding must have been pretty normal until what yeah. point? So it some of it was sort of Victorian era, um, but it particularly was around the affluent classes where the husbands wanted multiple children um, so that the children would be wet nursed um, and so that the wife of the manor could get pregnant again. But the trouble was that the wet nurse might live in very um, poor circumstances or the baby was given something else and then the death rate went higher and higher but it then became a commercial thing of if a, um, a scientist can make it it's got to be better than what a woman's body can make because women are of the lower echelons of society um, so you know, if you get it on a doctor's prescription, which the early formulas were, they were supposedly specially made, um, they've got to be better. Um, and when I used a quote in my thesis, which Churchill has said, there's no finer investment than getting milk into babies. But that wasn't anything to do with breastfeeding he actually wanted them on cow's milk because there was a glut of cow's milk at the time mm. and they needed to use it and they wanted the women in the munitions factories okay so it's all about manipulating the whole of society instead of just doing what women want to do naturally do you feel like that's something that's happened because of sinister forces or is it more just we've accidentally ended up there there's a few kind of influential people who have sounded very positive but now it's very difficult not to believe that babies and bottles and formula go together if you pick up any doll if you buy a doll for autumn this christmas yeah I will, or any toy, I'll pretty much guarantee they come with a bottle with them. Mm -hmm. And um, I once taught an antenatal class where somebody said, you can't feed a baby throughout its childhood, never give it a bottle. Well, yeah, you can, but we've become used to the idea. And the formula companies are becoming more and more clever at telling us that their product is based on the best research. It's so much better than than breast milk um it's easier it you know and 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 this insidiousness of things like um dads can take over the night feeds but rich how many times are you going to have time to feed at night and go to work in the morning this is one of my high horses and i come across i may, i i i came up with a very controversial or what i'm sure you won't find controversial but <clears throat> many people would um, statement which basically says a woman's biological role is to feed their baby <clears throat> this concept that man will do night feeds is total bollocks there's no point the man's job is there to support and do everything else while the woman breastfeeds and that might sound a bit chauvinistic and for some women sure you know careers are very important this that and the other but actually a woman's biological role as a mother is to feed her baby and be a mother and there's no getting around the fact that men's roles are different to women's roles there's no reason um, why you can't have a career in breastfeed though yeah of course 
No, um, my eldest daughter um, gave birth in America and where they're expected to go back to work after six weeks and the nurseries are all set up to cater for those babies. But she pumped for the whole of the time that she was living out there. Um, and you're right, you know, why is giving a baby a bottle the only way that somebody else can bond with that baby? What's wrong with a bath? What's wrong with skin to skin? What's wrong with looking after the mother? You know, you can, you can give her a, a neck and shoulder massage. You can cook her tea. You can rub her feet. You can bring her a bar of chocolate, whatever it is. Yeah, we've done plenty of those, plenty of those. <laughs> first time round, anyway. Yeah, first time round. <laughs> First time round, there was chopped fruit in the morning and all sorts. Second time round, I was getting up with a toddler, so it wasn't quite the same. But which was I've, I've been doing de- Deliveroo for the last three weeks, so I cook the evening meal and take it round in an insulated bag for both of them. Wow, I mean, our grand the grandparents our side are great, but that sounds amazing. <laughs> they're, they're lucky that they're, they're the only ones that live close enough for me to do that. And uh, their comment the other day was, "We're not stupid. That's why we're staying locally." Wow. <laughs> It's funny, isn't it? I I feel like, you know, the medical profession should be above this. You know, I'm a big evidence, as people that listen to this show will know, I'm a big fan of evidence-based medicine and doing things that have got evidence base. And um, it, it's almost like the medical profession has lost its way with breastfeeding as well. And, and, and has bought into this culture, this bought into this culture of let's bottle feed or fed is best or, or whatever. And and just doesn't get breastfeeding, doesn't get the advantages. And I don't know why, I, you know, it's possibly down to training. It's possibly down to something else. I mean, your your one of your uh, pieces of writing has got the following piece of crap advice, which is uh, breastfeeding support in the 1980s was not the best. Water to be offered after every feed, two minutes aside, building to a maximum of 10 minutes and never feed more than four four hourly. And you said it was only thanks to your mum who had breastfed you, who encouraged you to follow your instincts that you felt empowered to feed successfully. And you think, where the hell did that advice come from? Someone just came, plucked it out of thin air, didn't they, and started spouting yeah, it? Yeah, there, there, there were various men who decided that four hours was a good time. But the only positive about giving birth at that time was that every member of the staff was on the ward at that four hourly point to help with breastfeeding if you wanted to breastfeed. I was in a four bed ward. I was the only breastfeeder. Uh-huh. But they took the babies away overnight. So you were then left listening for your baby's cry. And I don't know if you can remember how you can pick out your baby's cry really early on. And you're lying there and you're thinking, my breasts are aching to feed my baby, but I'm not allowed to get out of bed. And the 1980s was the time when the breastfeeding rates were at their lowest. Mm-hmm. And we've done lots and lots of work since then. And Scotland was the first to notice that breastfeeding rates weren't where they wanted them to be and to put the money and the impetus towards driving that. And it spread out a little bit of time. It went to Wales, it's gone to Northern Ireland. But in the meantime, we're we're kind of discounting the fact of putting it in undergraduate lectures for doctors, pharmacists, nurses. We're, do you remember anything, Rich, in your, in your undergraduate time? Um, I don't remember any lectures. I think we did 
probably some breast anatomy, um, probably some mammary gland histology. And then I remember when we had a GP placement in my third year, we had a breastfeeding support worker come for about an hour and a half or two hours. Um, but probably wasn't mature enough to really understand there. Um, so I think the training's woefully inadequate, or it was for me, and that's, you know, 15 years ago. Um, the training's woefully inadequate, or at least it was. But I think you can't just do it once. You can't just have a one-off lecture in second year and then maybe a bit of clinical exposure later on. Um, the, the other thing is, I think for men, the the world of women's health is a little bit closed as a student. I think you go and do obstetrics and it's very difficult to see a normal delivery because women don't want male medical students in there often. I'm sure there are plenty of women that will listen to this podcast who will say, yeah, bring it on. And thank thank you, because it is so important that medical students see normal normal births or, or you know, vaginal births as well as cesarean sections. Um, but it's really important that medical students are exposed to all aspects of women's health because it pervades medicine. Now, I'm a haematologist and I see on a weekly basis women of breastfeeding or childbearing age, some of whom are pregnant or thinking about pregnancy, who have nasty medical conditions who are on nasty drugs that need that early conversation about how you're going to feed your baby. And that little, that little conversation with someone two, three minutes, just to say breastfeeding is an option for you could just sow that seed or at least be the thing that stops them giving up. Um, so in answer to your question, no, absolutely woefully inadequate needs plenty more. And I, you know, this again comes down to society's value on breastfeeding. But Rich, tell, sorry, I was going to just, just interject. Tell Wendy what your attitude towards breastfeeding was when you were a medical student. Because you told me, you told me that you yeah, I think, felt quite arrogant about it. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> so I remember, yeah, I remember that, that, gen, that GP placement, that woman coming in and speaking to us about breastfeeding. I'm sure there'd been some kind of dodgy publication that morning or the day before and it'd be on a Today programme or something. Um, yes, I was the 21-year-old listening to Radio 4. Um, I'm that cool. Um, and I was pretty pretty cynical about breastfeeding. Um, but that tells you something, doesn't it? it? tells you something about society's, society's um, projection of breastfeeding onto, onto young people. But I think also we don't talk about it early enough. So, you know, if kids are growing up with all their toys coming with bottles, by the time they've gone to school and got some education, by the time they're going through university, we should just be dripping it in. But it's not just breastfeeding is a good idea. It's the real reasons and how clever it is. Like breast milk changes throughout the day. If you, Holly, go out and meet somebody with a cold tomorrow, within a very short time, you will have made the antibodies to that cold to pass on to autumn. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you pass somebody that's got a gastric infection, exactly the same. But if autumn comes into contact with her, she also sends a message back to your breasts to make that. Now, how clever is that? This is all going on and we know nothing at all about it. I I I love the um so Autumn is always grabbing my mouth when she feeds. She loves to stick her hand in my mouth and claw away at my gums. Um and I, I looked that up and I love the fact that 
there's a there's a little evolutionary reason for that. It's so she's passing on all the germs that she's picked <laughs> up to me so that I can produce the antibodies to protect her. It's just fantastic. But if if you um, had given birth in Iceland, your milk would have more fats in it to keep the baby warm. Mm. If you oh, wow. gave birth in the Sahara Desert, it would be more watery to keep the baby hydrated. Hydrated. And and it's it's ne- never the same. Back when and I it's, first and it's different tra- at different times of day, isn't it? Yeah. So at night when I feed Autumn, it will have sleepy hormones and she'll. Yes. You wouldn't know that though, would you? <laughs> Just imagine what it was worth. Look, everybody loves a party in their cot at three yeah, in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's it's just ever changing. And, and back when I was beginning to train as a breastfeeding counselor, there was an advert by one of the formula magic manufacturers, which had test tubes and saying, which showed different levels of breast milk, and some were thick and creamy, some was very watery, some was a small volume, some was a high volume, and it said. Our milk is always the same. Well, actually, that's not good because it always tastes the same. Now, can you imagine for six months at every feed, you're going to get the identical taste, slightly different volume. Whereas if you're breastfed, it's hot. You can have some thirst quenching milk. If you're cold, if you've got a bug, you'll have a different milk. If you've eaten a curry, you get the taste of the curry. It's it's changing all of the time. Our kids must have had a lot of curry. <laughs> like I bet they'll grow up loving curry. <laughs> I think out the town we live in has got kind of one curry house per thousand people. It's ridiculous. Honestly, it's ridiculous. Um, Wendy, this conversation could last for hours, but I'm, I'm conscious of time and there's, there's lots to talk about. Um, so I, I want to bring you on to your area of singular expertise, which is drugs. Um, not not the illicit t- kind. Well, maybe, maybe. Well, Medi- I get asked medication. about those too. <laughs> yeah, and I see. And your website's fantastic for those too. And these are important. These are important things. And that you know, the thing I love about your website is you're not afraid to answer those questions um, that perhaps another healthcare professional may may shy away from. You say, well, okay, there's no evidence this, that, and the other. You actually give give proper advice to people, which is fantastic. Um, what you um, helped set up the um, breastfeeding network and the National Drugs in Breast Milk Helpline, which is now an email support line. And I read somewhere that you dealt with, te- you would, or are dealing with 10,000 queries a year, although I think you've passed that on to an, another 11 expert pharmacists. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It, it, at one stage, it was a telephone line with me and one person on a Friday morning. Um, but as the number of calls grew and grew and grew, it was virtually an impossible way to achieve it. So some of the messages come in via Facebook, some are emailed. And I think we're pretty unique in answering questions to mothers on Facebook. There were professionals that emailed on Facebook as well. And we took some samples at one time and it was averaging out of 10,000 contacts a day. 10,000 contacts a day? Uh, sorry, a year. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, But they were seven days a week and they could be from all over the world. Okay. And anything from, can I wear nail varnish to, I did two lines of cocaine last night. Wow. And everything in between, uh, the chronic conditions and things. But 
as I got older and the number of grandchildren grew, I thought, enough. I have my my daughter said you were never with us. You always had your phone in your hand looking for the next mum because okay. I wanted to respond quickly because the mother messaging might be my daughter who was about didn't know whether she could take this drug that she'd got or not. So it's um, it changed into being just the um, social media emails and then. Uh, by that time, I had another lovely pharmacist called Amanda, who was there one day a week. And then BFN put the funding in to train 11 others and are just starting to train another tranche as well. That's so that there is somebody to answer from 9.30 in the morning till 9.30 at night, seven days a week. Wow. And they're being much better than I am because they're actually recording where the person is calling from. Um and exactly how many calls when I was getting that many sometimes I'd answer them outside the school while waiting for a grandchild or as I got into the car when walking the dogs and I never got chance to record called it all it was in my head but not on pieces of paper so it was very difficult to get grants applications because I didn't have the data right what, what are the most common queries the one that's most common is about mental health that takes up to about 20% of calls. Wow. Um, because when you're a new mum, you're very protective of your child and you want to stop everybody else um, passing on something bad, but you can become hyper-protective, which squidges over into anxiety. And depression is also very true because... Depression is around us all of the time, and, and sometimes we don't want to admit it. We're trying to be super people and put on a brave face because that's what Brits do. Whereas actually, if the right person asks you in the right way, you'll be honest about how you feel. Um, we, I mean, we have some personal experience of this. Hold, do you want to say a little bit about your, yeah, your the, I mean... the last the last kind of nine months or so? Yeah, absolutely. So everything you just said completely resonates with me. Um, I, I mentioned at the start that I got quite sad when, when Joey self-weaned and I don't know whether it was, you know, being overwhelmed with the fact that I was pregnant and I had a, a very young child at home and, you know, being back to work. But um, I think before Autumn was even born, I was starting to, to, to get quite anxious um, and depressed. Um, and when she was born... Um, didn't improve it got worse um as is you know very common as you've already said in lots of ladies um after they've you know had little ones um so yeah I did I did go to the doctors a few times and discussed um some form of treatment um primarily for anxiety um <laughs> get those sort of intrusive thoughts and just worrying about you know worrying about absolutely everything worrying about driving in the car and something happening to the children and are the car seats fixed properly in the car are the are the, are the belts you know are they are they fixed in tightly are they is Joey, is Joey going to choke on that piece of toast he's eating now is is autumn going to be okay on the inner cot while I'm having to tend to Joey and I could go on and on and on um and I'm sure you know you've heard this many times from from people that um have come to you um so yeah it, it I think, Rich, you were quite keen for me to um, seek help, weren't you? And, and um, sort of, 
I don't know, I'm waffling a little bit because it's something that's quite, I suppose, quite difficult for me to talk about because of <laughs> all the reasons you mentioned. Um, so in short, um, we discussed medication and um, I started taking sertraline. Um, but this was something that I had to give quite a lot of thought to. It took me a couple of times going back because... Um, and this is absolutely no disrespect to the GP who I saw. Um, but, you know, in in doing their job, they read the... Is it the the, NICE, yeah. the BNF yeah. guidelines? Um, which which said, consider... Um, stop, advi- advise, consider stopping breastfeeding. And, and, you know, the GP just sort of read that information for me and sort of said, there you go, make your own decision. Um, and obviously when I was at the height of, you know, anxiety, I, I, I sort of questioned, well, should I be taking this? Is this, is this going to be bad for autumn? I've already got these, all these worries about her. Um, is this going to pass into her milk and, and, you know, pass on to her? And is that going to be detrimental to her? Um, but I think now that I've sort of come through the other side and I'm, I'm, I am weaning off it now, um, I look back and think, well, actually, there's a there's a, a balance of risks, um, and that's obviously a medical term that I've heard Rich use. <laughs> there's a balance of risks there, and I know now that had I not taken it, I could have got a lot worse. Had I given up breastfeeding, oh my god, I mean, that would have probably just pushed me over the edge in terms of my mental health. All those happy hormones would have gone. I'd have been feeling immense guilt for not giving her the breast milk that I wanted to I wouldn't have had that bonding experience that I've had and you know I was able to make that informed decision with the help of my doctor husband but other you know other people might not be in that fortunate position I mean Wendy you've done some qualitative work on this and what Holly's just said is essentially is so consistent with what you what you found isn't it and the the thing with anxiety is the anxiety makes you worry more about the drug and about your child. But without the drug, you can't make the rational decision and you go round and round and round in this circle and you're kind of rubbing an open wound all of the time until it's raw and bleeding and and your whole whole soul is raw and bleeding. But the wording in the BNF has actually changed very slightly. Um, because of a group that have been run by the MHRA, which is trying to make the BNF give more expert advice. So the amount of sertraline that gets into breast milk is pretty much molecules. Mm. Um, And it doesn't harm babies at all. It's been out for a long time. If we knew there was some harm, we'd know about it by now. But the hardest bit is that it's taking that four to six weeks to kick in, which is four to six weeks where you keep on going, am I really doing the right thing? And you might get some side effects at the beginning and you think, really, should I be doing this? Um, So often it needs another drug adding in to help you in that period as as well. Um, But it and it's. Let's say your mum had been anti-breastfeeding and had said well you breastfeeding with drug in it that's really not good for the baby so formula would be much better wouldn't it and then that's going to fuel your anxiety until Mm -hmm. you think actually I do have to choose between breastfeeding and the drug and you stop and then you have a the loss of the oxytocin but then the guilt Mm -hmm. 
And I've had women years and years and years later tell me about how they couldn't feed because they had to take medication. That that feeling doesn't go away. And Amy Brown has written a, a brilliant book about um, grief and breastfeeding and about how we rarely stop and listen. And I think that's one of the, the things that I would want medics to take her on board is ask the mother what she wants to do. How if, as you did, you'd struggle to get breastfeeding established. It hasn't been an easy journey. It's cost you lots of money physically, financially, and everything else to get to where you are now. And then somebody says, well, you just can stop. It doesn't matter. You fed for six weeks. Only 22% of people are still breastfeeding at six weeks. So you did a good job, didn't you? But that is how you feel. Your head is screaming out, yes, it matters. But in most medical situations, you say, yes, doctor, if that's what you say. And that we still have a bit of a paternalistic relationship with medics. And it's true with just about every drug that there is. Um, if, you're, if they're just reading what is in the BNF and not looking any further because they don't have time. You know, if you've got a 10 minute consultation period, you've listened to the story, you've recorded it on the screen, you've written a prescription and you've seen your patient out. You haven't got time to say how you feel, but there should be another mechanism somewhere else to send people to. So I think, you know, the peer support groups, the voluntary organisations do have the time to sit and listen and tell women. And because often they've been through the same situations. Mm -hmm. And with all of the um, drugs, I want to change conversations, which is, I need to give you this drug, can you breastfeed, to you want to breastfeed, what drug can I give you that allows you to continue? Yeah. But Holly, it can't be easy to talk on a podcast about how you felt. So my total admiration to you, you for being able to tell that story. Mine didn't didn't come out very eloquently but it, did. Uh, yeah. it, it came it out is. with feeling and and i'm watching rich's face as well which is also mirroring how he was feeling and wanted to help it's funny listening to you validate holly um and the thing that you said which was someone's telling you you've done really well but you're screaming I really want to carry on. This is really important to me. And someone's saying, no, you've done really well. Don't worry if you stop. That's cognitive dissonance. And that's a key, key driver of stress, anxiety and depression. So as medics, we do need to do better. Um, there, there is, a, there is an, a, a small excuse of time. Um, but as a GP seeing a... And again, I'm, we're not going to criticise Holly's GP or any other GP because it's an exceptionally hard job. Um the current government are doing enough to criticise our wonderful GPs and we have many, many friends who are brilliant. Um, but that conversation can go, Holly, I'm really sorry I don't have lots of time to go into this. There's a wonderful website run by a wonderful lady called Wendy Jones. Go and have a look, go and have a read. I'll see you next week. Here's some information on sertraline. You know, sertraline and postnatal depression and breastfeeding, that is not an uncommon scenario. 
a GP, to my mind, should know that that's a safe thing to do. And I think most of them do. Um, yeah. The mental health counsellor that I saw following my GP appointment was at, was fantastic. And he, you know, he put my mind at ease and said, look, you know, the research is, sertraline is fine to take. He's not reading from the, you know, the guidelines that the GP is. He's probably more... Um, I don't know. You, you, he's Maybe got experience that... in a small area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A, ge- a GP is, by definition, a generalist a and might be yeah. treating epilepsy, MS, lupus. So they have to refer to the guidelines, don't but it they? Comes, it comes down to that, that, that lack of training and that, that core skill of being able to balance risk. Now, you can only balance risk if you understand the risks and the benefits. And without understanding the benefits of breastfeeding and without understanding well, I'm telling this woman she's going to stop breastfeeding. That might be catastrophic for her. Without having any insight into that, it's really difficult to do everything else. That's that's my feeling. Yeah. Um, one of my daughters is is a CBT therapist. And, and one of the things that she's been trying to get through to all of her teams is that drugs in breast milk is a specialist area. And we need to support women. Um, but as you say, you know, come back next week. Make a double appointment next week. I trained as an independent pharmacist prescriber. Um, I used to be the village nag because I, I did obesity, smoking, uh, smoking cessation and primary heart disease risk. And I had 20 minutes because so I could implement the change things mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. you know what you want to do that GPs couldn't ever do. And, and nobody ever turned around and told me that I was the nastiest woman on the planet. <laughs> I'd love to hear some, have you, have you got any horror stories? I'd love to hear some of the worst, like what's the worst thing that a medic has said to someone or? That... In my PhD. So when I was doing my PhD, I had a thousand women, a thousand doctors and a thousand pharmacists in a match area. And I sent them very similar questionnaires and I sent them scenarios and one doctor said, if a mother insisted on breastfeeding when taking medication, I would report her to social services. Oh my God. Wow. Now, I'm ne- this was 22 years ago, but this is finished. But even so, I thought, really? You are going to destroy this family by not listening at all. There were lots of others who were, you know, I try very hard to say nice things, but... Um, yeah um and the the call i hate most is mothers who message on a monday morning and say i went to a party last week and they're usually with very small babies and i can't imagine how if you've got a six-week-old baby you've got the energy to go out partying get blotto drunk and use cocaine and then say can i breastfeed as normal um, or I think I need to stop, but is 24 hours long enough? What, what's the answer to that question? They should stop breastfeeding for 72 hours. Really? And I've had people go, I don't know what to do with my child. She is screaming. I want to feed her. I think it, you should have thought about that before yeah. you did that. But trying to put that in an empathetic way, mm. I'm sure if you could put yourself back in that situation on Saturday night, you would act differently. But I'm sorry. Mm. One woman then went away and, and found a friend who was breastfeeding to feed her baby okay. for, us, for us to get some comfort, which yeah. I thought was a 
a very intuitive way about getting around the situation. I think that's a very evolutionary consistent way, you know. If we if you think about the Paleolithic man, we would have lived in groups of 120 people. You'd have you probably wouldn't have your child probably would have had other people's breast milk, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And and it does still happen quite a while. Um, but um I'm also heavily involved with the milk banking um organizations and looking at the drugs somebody who is donating for a premature baby, uh, what drugs they can take that won't harm this very sick, very poorly baby. But we've also got a different set of guidelines where the milk is being given to term or older babies, for example, where the mum's got breast cancer and had to stop breastfeeding Mm. and try and give as much milk as we can, you know, depending on how much we've got, where the baby doesn't, isn't going to be harmed by sertraline or something like that Mm -hmm. so that milk would be given to a term baby but not a preterm baby okay Okay. so but it's another way of looking at uh... yeah sure clearly there's there's many other medical conditions i i wanted to touch on possibly one thing very briefly given that i'm a hematologist and that's anticoagulation um my my concern is we'll get advice calls from um obstetrics saying okay this lady's got a clot she needs anticoagulation and i'll ask is she breastfeeding and the the response will be hmm mm, uh no don't think so Mm, no she's not Mm, mm, no don't worry about that which translated means you can either have these they're telling this woman you can either have these painful injections or warfarin which is basically rat poison you'll need a ton of blood tests or you can not breastfeed and have one of these newer safer cleaner tablets once a day no problem am i am i on the money do you think that happens I, I, I know it happens because I've had the emails. Have you? <laughs> um, okay. Uh, and women who maybe six months down the road who've been having the low molecular weight heparins and actually yeah. have got on okay and have got used to doing the injections. Um, and then they're told, well, it would be so much easier. You don't have to do your blood tests. If you... And they're saying, mm, again, we're back to you fed for six months. You don't need to feed any longer. Uh, but it comes back again to telling the mother what to do, not asking the mother what she wants to do. And most of us will tolerate an incredible amount to keep our baby safe. If somebody told you, Holly, that you had to lose your left arm tomorrow in order that autumn was safe from some awful disease, would you lose your left arm? absolutely in a heartbeat (laughs) i will stick needles in my belly and my legs for as long as you ask me if i can still breastfeed so and and the evidence is starting to change on some of the doacs that we do have some information that some of them might be compatible not all of them yet we don't have the data um but there is some but we all got hooked on the idea of not having to do INRs because it's a cost saving, it's a time saving. And it this was even pre-COVID, so goodness knows what it must be like now. Yeah, no, absolutely. I know yeah, there's definitely emerging evidence for safety of Roxban. I think looking at the the trials of DOAX in neonates, you know, that there is data coming there. There's not much data on very, very tiny neonates. I sometimes wonder about 10A inhibition. Obviously, a neonate's unlikely to bleed with the amount of rivaroxaban that gets through the gets through the breast milk. B- 
because they're not mobile. So you think of a haemophiliac baby, they tend not to get joint bleeding until they're mobile. So that's one thing that's relatively reassuring. But I, I sort of worry about the the role of factor 10A in inflammation and other things that we don't understand. Um, so that's one consideration. But I, to my mind as a haematologist, if there's a sixth, if you've got a, a woman who's six months postpartum and is sick of giving injections and doesn't want morphine, I, I'd be pretty comfortable with Viroxaban. Yeah, looking at all the evidence, I would be happy to prescribe it. The only problem I, with I mean, that is... I think, you know, if, you, if you've got a very preterm neonate, the priority is to get breast milk into them so that they don't get neck yeah. um, and, and the risk of dying. So it's, it's whatever we can do to facilitate that, that milk yeah. transfer. Again, it's this balance of risk, but there's, you know, there's fear of litigation, there's fear of doing harm. But in the in the short term, you know, low molecular heparin is a great option. But yeah, I can imagine getting sick of injecting for six months. And, but if you know, you're there's... if you're dealing with a mum and you've listened to her and you've explained your thought process, how likely is it that she's going to sue you compared with somebody you told this is what you're doing? It all comes from miscommunication. All the lawsuits come from miscommunication, don't they? Um, you know. Fair enough. The, the thing I was going to say was uh, with Roxban, sometimes with you know it may not be a great option if you're expecting periods to return. So that's another another thought. But there are other things you can do there. So if there's any women listening to this who you know are worried about anticoagulation and periods returning, um, feel free to tweet me. Um, feel free to uh, message Wendy because there's plenty of things that can be done um, and plenty of options. Um, okay. And the other thing I wanted to talk about briefly, and I appreciate we're running out of time and running slightly over, and I hope that's okay, um, is um, the complex medical patients where there's women on multiple drugs. Um, how do you deal with those situations? I, does it all come down to, you know, what drugs can we give to help this woman continue breastfeeding? I'm, I'm part of a, a research study that's, that's actually um, looking at this and trying to find where are the barriers and the facilitators in this. Because if a woman's seeing multiple consultants, are they talking together? And are they, is there a multidisciplinary team with the woman at the centre? Or are we all acting in isolation? And, and so often I get the message of, um, this woman's in labour or she delivered six hours ago, can she breastfeed? Well, she's been pregnant for nine months. Why have we not thought about this before? And, and there are lots of different ways where I think we could use a hospital pharmacist who appears in a clinic once a month, who talks with the mother about her various medications and discusses what they are so what, all it needs is is a bit of joined up work and a pharmacist going where pharmacists don't usually go into the antenatal clinics and and changing things because otherwise so often women are told with the number of drugs that you're on no you can't breastfeed and however much she wants to and so often they'll say i will if I absolutely have to bottle feed, but I'd really like to find a way. And and my heart aches for them. I mean, the fantastic thing is that even in those situations, those women can get in touch with you or the, well, the, 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 the legacy network that you've left, um, which is 
absolutely amazing um and i can't thank you enough for doing that for humanity it's really cool um me too yeah. we used it on a personal level definitely yeah. um, and we can see from you know social media what what that means to people there's there's one thing else that we've been looking forward to asking you so hold your oh yeah so you you've received an mbe for your work that's what? correct can you can you tell us about that and you met the queen did you yeah i did um so i i opened this letter one evening um and it says um her Majesty of the Queen is—I um, can't remember the words now. It's, um, we, you're going to have an M MBE, and I'm sitting there, and and my language is suddenly not quite ladylike, and I am literally <laughs> sitting there going, oh. <laughs> and I wasn't allowed to tell anybody for six weeks, apart from my husband who was in the room going, "What the hell's the matter with you?" And I got the letter that I was to receive it at Windsor Castle. I said, well, that's, that's gorgeous. What a beautiful surrounding. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until we were walking through the grounds and all the different people um, were greeting us. And, and they were lovely because they said, oh, your hat's lovely today, isn't it? Oh, do you, what a, uh, you do look so smart. And they were so lovely. And then somebody you did, said, you do know it's the Queen, don't you? <gasps> and I just burst into tears because I couldn't imagine how special this was going to be. Oh. Um, and, and the whole formal procedure of, of waiting um, to receive it and, and mixing with all the other people. And the thing that sticks in my mind is that the people I was talking to all were saying the same as me. I didn't think it happened to people like me. I was just doing what I have a passion for. Why? And, the, and then you get to the end and, and the usher says, you'll hear your name and the reason why you're you're being awarded so it's um dr wendy jones um for services to mothers and babies and i'll tap you on the back and you go forward and then you curtsy and i'd go what's my name <laughs> my mind was a complete blank because i'm staring at the queen and i'm thinking i'm gonna fall over i'm not going to be able to curtsy straight um and then eventually they you get to um curtsy shake hands with the queen and, and uh, she asked me what exactly was that i i did and it, it's oh. over in a flash um but because you get a video of all of it you can keep mm -hmm. going back it really did happen yeah. but of course the the magic thing for me was that the queen broke with all of the traditions in the I royal was about family to ask you about this. yeah and she breastfed which who was the first of the royal family to do so she only breastfed prince charles for two months because she got measles and she was too ill to breastfeed oh, right. um, i couldn't find any data of how long she fed the others for oh. but she was the first of the royal family and she facilitated princess diana and kate to feed their own children in turn oh. So she she made breastfeeding normal. And yeah, it, it, it touched me actually when, when I read about that. I was going to ask you about that. Um, it's, it's, uh... So that made her even more special. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. She's an amazing lady. Um, as are you. Um, we are so privileged to have spent the last hour with you. Thank you so much. Um, and again, thank you from all the other ladies and women around the world who, oh, and families, men, men, dads. And medics and yes, <laughs> thanks to all. But thank you from all the dads around the world for supporting us because it's uh, it's an amazing, amazing thing. And an MBE, an MBE is not enough. You should be a dame. Thank you. 
Um, really we'll... enjoyed it. It's gone so fast. I know. <laughs> it has. I know. We'll we'll leave it there. Um, Thank you, Wendy. <laughs> if we have some feedback from this episode and there are other people that, that want to ask questions and things, perhaps we'll sort of try and bring those together and maybe we can do this again. Um, and if you're ever up this way, we're only just off the M6 if you fancy a cup of tea. My pleasure. I'd love to. <laughs> that would be wonderful. Oh, please do. <laughs> All right. Um, do you want to plug the website? So the website is www.breastfeeding-and-medication.co.uk or group of 11 um, plus a new group of 12 is breastfeedingnetwork.org.uk <laughs> because I've left I've forgotten that one <laughs> okay and there's some you've written you've written a ton of books as well oh yes um, um what my, would you point my, my grandma's to? boasting library because all of them have pictures <laughs> of my grandchildren on. I'll, I'll ask you I'll let me let me ask you so because I'll put I'll put the links to all of them but if you could push a medic towards one and a mother or a dad towards another which which one medics i'd go for breastfeeding and medication or a guide to supporting medication for the breastfeeding mother which is has got chapters co-edited that which has got lots of chapters by lots of people including on tongue tie and dads and grandmas um there is one called the importance of dads and grandmas to the breastfeeding mum, which was dedicated to my son-in-law the father of my eldest grandson who sadly died when the baby was three months old so this was was my gift to him to make him a little bit immortal and he's on the cover too oh, that's a wonderful thing to be able to do okay i will i promise i'll put all those links in there i'm going to shout about this podcast from the rafters um because the world needs to hear your voice and i'm really vain and i'd like people to listen to me been an immense privilege wendy thank you so much and um have a great evening get that gnt down you <laughs> drink. Okay. We, we, there's, there's some lovely non-alcoholic gins <laughs> all right take care Happy take that. care okay cheers thank bye, you bye. don't just read the guidelines is for education and entertainment only and should not be taken as medical advice I certainly cannot guarantee the factual accuracy of any of the content, but if you do have any constructive criticism, please find me on Twitter, at Richard Booker. If you like the show, please take the time to write a review on iTunes, Google, or wherever else you listen. It will really help others find the podcast. See you soon.